This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. What is more exciting than people looked upon as the others writing of their lives? This is part of the oral history movement that preceded the Chinese invention of paper that preceded the quill pen, and long ago preceded the typewriter, which, by the way, I'm just learning to use, the electric typewriter. You see, I should point out that I'm from the 20th rather than 21st century, and that when you say hardware and software, to me it has a wholly different meaning it has to you. Hardware are kettles and pots and pans and forks and spoons, software, pillowcases and bedspreads and <laughs> counterpanes. So it's different language. At the same time, the language that is common is to find out where the body is buried, to find out where the truth is. And each of them is able to maintain his, her sense of independence, even though they may be working for corporate giants. How to do that is the trick, and they've done it. That is not to be suicidal, no. Not to lose your job, no. But to say what you have to make, still maintain your sense of independence. You are what these awards are about. An excellent investigative journalist and activist. You and your skills help make this a better place for all of us. And we still have a way to go. Welcome, everybody. Um, good to see you. Hi, Bill. Hi. Uh, each year, our college selects a book, what we call our One Book, One Campus, One Book, One College uh, program. And through the fall semester and the spring semester of that school year, we uh, encourage all of our faculty members to make use of that book in their courses and then throughout the year we have special events both here in the library and at uh, various locations in the school district and the program has uh, gained a certain momentum over the years and I think that uh, is really becoming well known on our campus. Uh, Troy Swanson, one of our librarians, has been doing a great job heading up the program uh, and for this school year, he and his committee picked a book called Working by Studs Terkel. And it's the, not the first, it's about the second or third in a, in a long series of books that Terkel uh, wrote chronicling 
the lives of ordinary Chicagoans in a, in a very uh, intriguing way. Uh, Tom Clark, a friend of mine for uh, over 30 years, and I know his parents, I knew his uncle, uh, found a Southside passport, got his limo driver to navigate uh, the highways and byways of greater Chicagoland and came out to our uh, campus today. So we're very, very pleased that Tom is here. Uh, Tom, you're, you're at a great place at a great time and a great moment in our school's history. Uh, Tom is uh, a journalist. He's been a, a journalist for a long time. And the main thing he, he brings to us this afternoon is, is a friendship with Studs Terkel. He, he worked with him. Uh, he knew him. He, he understands his work. And the best part about it all, Tom is perpetuating that spirit. So uh, it's a real privilege to have him come out here. Uh, Tom and I uh, have both been very fortunate over the years to have come under the mentorship, the tutorship of some great Chicago journalists, uh, some of them the same people, uh, others different, he probably much more than I. But over the years we have tuned in to what we call Chicago-style journalism, and, and Tom is going to try to lift up some of that for us uh, this afternoon. The other thing we have in common is that Tom and I both carry a uh, Chicago Public Library card. Uh, maybe Tom will get an honorary Moraine Valley Community College Library card. I don't know. That could, but we no. I have one. I have one. We both have a, a CPL card, and what that uh, entitles us to not only access to to a great great library system, but um, this year's one book one Chicago. Uh, Mayor Daly thought of this idea before uh, our library here, and the city of Chicago has been doing this kind of thing for some time. This book's, so this year's selection in the city of Chicago is about Daniel, Daniel Berman, who was responsible for a lot of the architecture and the, um, uh, the, the park system, the layout of the city of Chicago. And, and I, I found it kind of interesting, Troy, that, that uh, Daly picked a book about the front yard of Chicago, but we here at Moraine Valley picked a book about the backyard of Chicago. Daly picked a book about Chicago's hardware, but we picked a book about Chicago's software, about the people of Chicago. And Tom, I know you already know a lot about community colleges, but our students are going to, in their careers, be doing what we call relational work. That's the kind of careers that they aspire to. And to do that kind of work, to be in those kind of careers, they need to be in touch with its essential component, which is the story. And the first movement in that is to know their own story. And that's, that's a big job, but that's part of what they're doing here at Moraine. They're getting in touch with their own story. And then what we know about Chicago journalism is that you can tell the big story by telling the little story, the little story of, of ordinary people. So, again, we're very pleased that Tom Clark is here. Uh, 
he's going to tell you so many different things he's, he's involved in. Uh, Tom? Thank you, Bill. And um, thank you for using up your lunch time to, uh, to listen to an old guy from the city. Um, I, I have some prepared remarks, but I'm going to try to be conversational. And my, my plan was to try to share with you not so much uh, a whole big academic track about working. I'm not doing that. Uh, but I brought this as a prop because it is a very rich book. It's, it's the second one I read of Studs, and I'll talk a little bit about how I met Studs and had the great privilege to, to actually become pretty close to him. Um, but I want to explain this opening video, and I'm going to close with a video that's also related to my current work. Um, um, I kind of came into journalism through a back door, um, doing newsletters for the nonprofits I worked for. And um, one of those became a kind of an urban journal with some um, prominence uh, within urban planning circles back in the 80s um, and called the Neighborhood Works. It's no longer published, but the organization that put it out, the Center for Neighborhood Technology, is still... 30 years later, doing a lot of important uh, work around transportation, green jobs, uh, the environment. Um, and um, that backdoor into journalism introduced me to um, um, uh, both a, a mutual colleague, the late John McDermott, who was publisher and founder of the Chicago Reporter, a still very important investigative journal on race and politics in Chicago, one of those issues that we we uh, probably don't talk about enough in our alleged post-racial America, which we discovered this summer isn't exactly true. Um, the the backdoor journalism allowed me to marry two particular interests I had, which was trying to uh, bring my work in uh, community development and organizing to more prominence, and like studs, trying to help so-called ordinary people. He always hated that term. He hated talking about his work representing lifting ordinary people who were doing extraordinary things. Because in his mind, everyone's extraordinary. Each of you has an extraordinary tell story to tell, even if it's not making it on the front page of the newspaper, uh, TV, or, or even YouTube. Um, the opening video was an excerpt we used at our annual Studs Terkel Media Awards that we have every year for the Community Media Workshop. That is the nonprofit I run. I f helped found it 20 years ago at a community college in the west side of Chicago, Malcolm X College. We literally took over an unused English classroom and began training community organizations, development groups, other nonprofits on how to get their story out. Um, and 20 years later, that's still essentially what we're doing, though the media landscape has shifted radically. Um, my, the introduction to our 300-page media guide last year was titled From Faxes to Facebook, because 20 years ago, groups were wondering if they had to have a fax machine to communicate with the Tribune. Today, they're sort of ignoring the Tribune and setting up their own Facebook accounts to get the word out directly to the groups that they're trying, the people they're trying to engage. Um, a lot of that shift in the media landscape um, befuddled Studs Terkel. And um, I'm going to go to my formal remarks, but I'm hoping to keep this to maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I have some excerpts, if you're bored, that I'll read from the introduction of working that um, I've been taking a closer look at the last few weeks, anticipating this time with you. But mostly I'd like to leave some time at the end for a Q&A and maybe some discussion. And I might even except for this bigger room. I might even break away from the microphone for a while. 
Um, we live in a pretty celebrity-driven culture, as I'm sure you well know, where gossip becomes news, opinion becomes fact through repetition, and ordinary lives don't count unless they're captured in the latest YouTube or the subject of the latest extreme makeover. Um, in an Internet era, it must be strange to herald a self-described eclectic disc jockey uh, whose interviews of celebrities and ordinary people made for extraordinary broadcasts and later award-winning books. I'm speaking, of course, of Studs Terkel. How many of you had heard of Studs Terkel before this working book was... So I'm, I'm seeing a couple of, sorry, older faces raise their hands. Um, you should know that Studs passed away just a year ago uh, at 95 and was, I think, as young at 95 despite a lot of infirmities and physical deterioration as he was when I first met him over 30 years ago or heard him on the radio over 45 years ago. And now I'm aging myself, but that's what happens in life. Uh, just me. Um, as Studs referred to in the little clip that I showed, uh, technology was never his forte, even though he, he did have to learn something about pushing play on a tape recorder. Tape, yeah. That was a thing that was actually on a reel. Um, your MP3 player was preceded by tape recorders. I'm, I hope, I'm, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to talk down to you, just trying to make sure I get through jargon that may seem very antique to you. But as you can tell from Studs, a lot of this was strange to him. Um, his very last book was still being done, punching out uh, pretty much two fingers on a typewriter. Um, um, that, that's, that's how pretty much he wrote. Um, Studs Terkel, <coughs> you should think of as someone who really kind of grew up in a, in a vaudeville type era. And a lot of his early years was very much engaged in coming... Uh, he came, originally came out of New York, but he, he moved to Chicago when he was about seven and uh, grew up on the near north side, um, grew up in what today we might call a flophouse almost type environment, but for him it was home. His mom ran a rooming house, and um, pretty early on he found formal education was not the way he was going to learn about the world, and pretty early on started taking the bus out of the, the safety of the more or less white north side to the more uh, African-American South Side. And he always talked, as was very much my own experience, leaving the western suburbs and taking the Lake Street L, now known as the Green Line, if you're familiar with the central city of Chicago, downtown and the subway off to Quigley North. I always felt that daily transit was the biggest part of my high school education, coming through the west side of Chicago, uh, into downtown, up to the Gold Coast, at a preparatory seminary high school that was across the street from Whiskey A Go Go. Um, and John Hancock building was still a hole in the ground. So like Studs, I found these parallels where um, as I began to listen to him, um, um, I felt fortunate to have a classical music loving jazz piano playing dad who introduced me to WFMT and their infamous Saturday Night Midnight special show which was always this kind of eclectic mix of music, far more than just folk or show tunes, although that was kind of a prominent thing. And I found myself being pushed and stretched beyond my own comfort zone or place of privilege in the suburbs to explore and become curious about a lot of other things. <coughs> um, 
Studs Terkel is who introduced me to the name and the work of someone like Mahalia Jackson. I would not have grown up having much exposure to gospel music, and it probably isn't on the top of my list of, uh, uh, of music to listen to today, but I certainly remember my dad taking me in 1966 to Soldier Field, where Martin Luther King was introduced by Mahalia Jackson, who was introduced by Studs Terkel, for this 100,000-person rally around fair housing. Um, those, even at the young age of 15 or 16, I already have been kind of prepped by studs for what this kind of um, unfolding civil rights movement was all about because of his sense of culture, music, and literally knowing some of the personalities who he then introduced to the rest of us through his daily radio show that he had on WFMT. It wasn't just Mahalia Jackson, but the next day it might be opera, the next day a jazz band leader, the next day a Broadway uh, uh, theater star, or Pete Seeger, who just turned 90, or even Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Um, the older I got, though, I realized that there were other less famous people that studs would bring on. The steelworker organizer from the South Side, who was uh, going up against the political machine. The welfare rights organizer from Uptown who was trying to bring voice to mom struggling to raise a family after dad lost his job or had left the home. A homemaker community organizer who was trying to stop urban renewal um, of her ethnic stronghold that was being turned into a university campus. Or the grandmother who was risking jail to protest missile silos in Midwestern cornfields. He was always finding a mix of music to kind of introduce and lead you out of those interviews. Um, and later, with the encouragement of a publisher-editor, he began to convert some of those interviews or a style of engaging people in what I've come to practice as kitchen table discussions um, into books. <clears throat> and while some of the later books that he did were mere compilations of his taped interviews, the early books, like Division Street, which was the first one I read, and later Working, which I think was the fourth book he actually published, um, were actually original interviews that he did uh, of people he may have originally introduced to the rest of us on the radio show, but were actually people he went out and interviewed independently for the book. In the book Working, Studs elevates down-to-earth clerks and bricklayers and grocery bakers as well as corporate CEOs. <coughs> I actually want to read um, a little bit from the introduction. How many of you have looked at the book so far? Great. Okay. So this is an effort to kind of encourage you to not look at this and see this huge book, but think of it as many different little chapters and short stories of actually fairly regular folks, some of whom later became famous, indeed did extraordinary things, um, but in fact started off as, as pretty ordinary folks. Um, working is not exactly an uplifting isn't America's workers doing a great job. It, it's a very realistic um, picture of the challenges of work, particularly if work isn't quite working out for you in terms of getting enough bread to put on the table. Um, um, he does talk about the nobility of the hourly worker who's really bored and wondering what the point of it all is. The nobility being he at least was putting bread on the table for his family. 
but he also finds the construction worker who's proud to show his son that that floor and the skyscraper, I put that floor there. If I hadn't been up there, that floor of that tall building wouldn't be there. Or even the cashier who actually loves her job and happily greets each customer even if they're grumpy. Um, from the introduction to working. It's about a search for daily meaning as well as for daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than tuper. In short, for a life, for the sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Perhaps immortality too is part of this quest. To be remembered, that was the wish, spoken and unspoken, of heroes and heroines in this book working. And I actually see in a lot of his books. In fact, agnostic that he was, I think this was part of Studd's own quest as he went through using his different skills as an interviewer, a theater uh, actor, a uh, breaker of codes for the FBI during World War II, and, and later book author. I think his own, uh, he considered himself an agnostic. Um, uh, he, he considered agnostic to be a cowardly atheist. Um, he, he wanted to know who would win the bet about whether or not there was an afterlife. But particularly in the latter stage of his, of, of his life, though a professed agnostic, I think he was very much consumed by a wonderment about immortality. And I think through his interviews with people, he was actually trying to discover people's own sense of how they would be remembered. How is the work I do here going to last? Whether it's through what my kids think of me, my spouse thinks of me, or the rest of the world does with my work. How will I be remembered, I think, is kind of a driving force with a lot of stuff that he was doing. I remember going to the premiere week of the musical working at the Goodman Theater downtown. It was a little overly long in the first rendition, and like the playwright, very eclectic in the kind of musical that had been collected. <coughs> um, I really couldn't believe that Studs Terkel interviews were being converted into songs by the likes of James Taylor. And, and yet here I was listening to this guy I'd grown up with, with music by James Taylor, um, another favorite of mine. A reworked version of the play made it to New York and had some famous actors in it, like Rita uh, Marino and Barbara Hershey and Brian Dennehy. May or may not be famous names to you, but these are kind of big names for me growing up. And here they were doing regular construction workers and cashiers and, and uh, waitresses um, using the words that Studs had put together. Didn't really make it on Broadway, and yet it's become working one of the more popular high school and college productions around. I think because of the eclectic music, so if you have a bunch of amateur performers, you'll find something that will fit people's range. So as a practical matter, it's made for a great kind of amateur theater production. But I also think it's because it speaks far better than Sound of Music or other famous plays to most of our lives, to most of our everyday lives, in a way that we can relate to a lot more easily. Um, I think the other problem with Broadway accepting working is that besides it being kind of eclectic, <coughs> it was probably a little too political. Politics was the other aspect of Studs Terkel's life um, that was always there. And as I referred to, during World War II, he helped break code 
uh, of uh, Nazi messages for the FBI. Um, he was actually asked to join a revived FBI after the war, but was a little uncomfortable about some of the things they were asking him to do. And by the early 50s, in fact, had been blacklisted uh, in the McCarthy era. Um, Studs used to say, I never saw a petition I didn't like. And that's probably one reason why the government went after him, because his name was all over the place. With every progressive cause, lefty and, quite frankly, sometimes righty cause that came along, anything that was kind of out of the mainstream or down the middle, Studs loved. And um, he wore his progressive politics on his sleeve, was never embarrassed about it, and really brought in his art as an interviewer and, and his mix of personalities on his program some of that sensibility of uh, leveling the playing field. Um, while writing the L one day another excerpt from the introduction I was approached by a singularly tall stranger hearing me talking to myself which I have a habit of doing he recognized my voice as the man he listens to on the radio he told me of his work and of his father's work his reflections ended up appearing in the chapter Fathers and Sons he also told me of two students, a young hospital aide and a young black man who works in a bank. They, too, ended up in the book. I mean, this is typical studs. Where did he find his material? He found it as he walked up and down the street or riding on the L, and people would come up to him as kind of a, oh, I've heard that voice. Is that what you look like? And then would just begin to engage in conversation. <clears throat> As I mentioned at the outset, I've spent about 35 years in the nonprofit sector in Chicago doing community development work, citywide coalition organizing around affordable housing, magazine editing, a lot of photojournalism. And for the past 20 years, I've run this nonprofit called the Community Media Workshop. One of my earliest campaigns I can remember us working on, the, the, the basic work of the workshop is training nonprofits to get their story out, was helping a group of welfare moms try to get their story about this is a, a pre-Clinton era, pre-welfare reform campaign where they're trying to get the public to understand what challenges uh, poor families on welfare were really up against. That they really weren't getting that much of a handout from the federal government and what they had to do to make ends meet. We actually had a lot of success with this Welfare Speakers Bureau. That's what we ended up calling it. On mainstream radio, I remember a particularly famous interview with Harry Porterfield, someone you should know with one of these moms. But by far the most memorable show was one that we did with Stutz. Um, the co-founder of the organization, a former Chicago Daily News reporter, Hank DeZutter, knew Stutz for a long time. In fact, um, in the acknowledgments page, uh, Hank is listed at the end as one of uh, Stutz's sources even for this book. Um, so getting on the show wasn't the problem. It's what mood would Studs be in that day, and what kind of a show would we get? Is it something we could use to help promote the issue of these moms on welfare? Um, though many of his shows were live, this particular afternoon it was going to be a taping. Um, I remember arriving at the studio, uh, probably a little bit more nervous than even our guests were. They were more excited uh, with this opportunity. And here I was, finally meeting Studs face-to-face, one-on-one. While we had met before, it was always as part of a larger group in a variety of uh, probably uptown events uh, where we both lived. Um, it was a remarkable experience to finally meet him. This is about 1990, 91. Um, we had sent him a whole bunch of briefing papers and backgrounds on this project and this Welfare Speakers Bureau. Uh, he didn't appear to have them with him. 
Fortunately, I brought along the sheet with at least the names of the women, uh, one of whom he knew from uptown in prior engagements. The other two were new names. He graciously greeted each of the moms, um, uh, brought them into the sound studio. I think his engineer put on some Lead Belly or Woody Guthrie or maybe a Billie Holiday tune to start up the show. And then the mic went on, and there he went, intensely engaging each one of these moms as if she were his best friend, putting them at ease as he asked them about their challenges, about their work, about the policy changes they were hoping for, their hopes and their dreams for their kids. And suddenly the hour was gone. Um, after all our training work, it was refreshing to hear the welfare activists get their stories across with this master interviewer, who actually didn't say that much. This is one of the main things I learned from studs in my own work, um, was not to kind of get in the way of the interview like so many cable talk show hosts, I'm afraid, do today, um, and to really respect the word of his guests. Um, another excerpt. The camera, the tape recorder, misused, well used. There are the paparazzi and there's Walker Evans. Walker Evans is a famous photographer who really got street uh, photography down pat. The portable tape recorder, too, is for better or for worse. It can be, tiny and well concealed, a means of blackmail, an instrument of the police state, or, as is most often the case, a transmitter of the banal. Yet a tape recorder with a microphone in hand is on the table or the arm of the chair or on the grass can transform both the visitor and the host. On one occasion during a playback, my companion murmured in wonder, I never realized I felt that way. And I was filled with wonder too because of what they had to share. The sense of wonderment, I think, is another important part of Studs. He found a way all the way to the end to have an intense curiosity about you. Um, we'll see this in the final tape I play where one of the reporters who's reflecting on what it meant to get a Studs Turkle Community Media Award and how it was to be in Studs' presence. I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself here in my remarks, but um, I'm coming to the end here pretty quickly. Um, as we got to know each other and the community media workshop took off, like any nonprofit, we realized we had to have an annual fundraiser. In this case, we decided to stage the Studs Turkle Community Media Award. Studs agreed to lend his name to our effort to honor journalists who, in the tradition of Studs, helped to find unusual sources or that third source that didn't usually end up in a story. Or the way we like to look at it is finding news sources who aren't paid to talk to the media because so many of the stories we see are actually being pronounced by people whose job it is to talk to the media, as opposed to the rest of us. Over three dozen Chicago area journalists have now received the Studs Turkle Community Media Award. We're beginning to see it show up on resumes. Um, and it's really through that process of meeting with them once or two, twice a year to go over possible candidates for the award, to talk about the logistics of the benefit night, that we got to know each other better. And after Hank DeZutter retired about eight years ago from the workshop, um, it was really important for me to kind of pick up the matter and maintain the relationship, at least for professional reasons. But as I found out, it really began to grow beyond that. Um, as studs began to engage some um, medical problems, some health challenges, and had several hospital stays, I was someone who 
um, because of a lot of medical involvement a daughter of mine had, was very comfortable in that unnatural environment. And where other people would be hesitant to visit someone who's sick in the hospital, I had no qualms about marching right in and to rush hospital and find out what floor he was in and going on sitting down and picking up on the current events of the day because Studs didn't want to be in the hospital either and loved having someone else to talk to. Um, one of the challenges in getting to know him during his last 10 years of life, however, was that he was in gradually becoming more and more deaf. I mean, literally could not hear despite state-of-the-art hearing aids and everything. Um, I did learn how to communicate with him one-on-one in a quiet room. At any time he was in a bigger room, uh, he really couldn't hear a damn thing. There's also a reference to that in one of the interesting stories in the final table show. About five years before he passed away, Studs had a serious fall, had a long convalescence, needed to uh, have a full-time care worker at home, and that actually led to us having even more frequent meetings. About once every other month, I would go to his home on Sunday mornings after I'd been to church, and we would just chat, usually 20, 30-minute visits, always about what was going on in the news, usually always had the TV on. He had little headphones so he could listen. He would always be ranting and railing against what the cable talk show heads had to say. Um, um, he, um, I remember our last visit, which was about two weeks before he passed away last fall. Uh, another Cubs-Sox season was uh, diminishing to an a, uh, unfaithful end. Um, he was worried about Barack in the, in the polls. Is, is Barack going to make it this time? We had talked politics a lot during his last year. Um, and he was looking forward to voting. And in fact, one of the stories uh, when he passed away on Halloween, a week before the election, was that his son had been late filing for his absentee ballot. And in fact, Studs passed away the Friday before the election, the absentee ballot having just arrived in the mail that morning, and he never had a chance to cast his ballot for Barack Obama. Um, it's something we all felt particularly chagrined about because for the first time in a long time, he would have actually been able to have voted for a winner. And that hadn't happened to, for many of us in, in quite some time. I, I was privileged to be part of a group that participated in the burial of the combined ashes of his beloved wife, Ida, and Studs uh, this past May around the time of his birthday. It was in Bughouse Square across the street from the Newberry Library. We dug a little hole around an uh, apple tree that had been planted there eight years ago when Ida passed away. We had a little mum plant. We had great stories we were being told. I want to share one story from that event and then kind of a funny thing that happened after we were finished with the ceremony, and then we'll go to the final tape here in your questions. Um, one, of the, one of the folks who gathered talked about um, uh, studs walking down um, aimlessly, it would seem to anyone who encountered him, near his uptown home one afternoon. Um, in his rumpled trench coat, um, a la Columbo, if you're familiar with that old TV show. Um, and he was kind of talking to himself. And the guy he was with, knowing that out in the street studs couldn't hear anything, just kind of was walking with him, making sure he didn't fall, um, um, sort of trying to listen to what he was saying. But notice there were a couple of uh, classic neighborhood youth coming the other way. Uh, pants, you know, hanging up to or down to about their thigh, if you know what I mean. Uh, and, and his colleague has gone, okay, what's this going to be like? Studs is sort of off somewhere else talking to himself in this trench coat, 
and these two youth are coming along, and as they're just beginning to engage each other in terms of physically passing by, Studs suddenly stops and turns to them and goes, Gentlemen, tell me about rap music. And for the next 45 minutes, that's exactly what they did. Totally different culture, totally different ethnicity, totally different age group, and yet just the way he engaged them as I had heard so many times over the, over the radio show and in person, he totally broke all those barriers down, and these two young men had this old codger listening to every word, as well as, I assume, performing some of their own pieces right there on the street near Lawrence and Sheridan. Um, so we had a lot of stories like that during this uh, burial of ashes, and... Um, uh, for some inexplicable reason, as his son is, is asking all of us to come up and help put the ashes in the ground, and he's beginning to cover it up, instead of putting the mum plant um, right on top of the ashes, they bury the ashes and move the mum plant over about a foot or so. There was something that his neighbor and him worked out. And so they had to dig another hole to put the mum plant in, uh, gorgeous yellow flowers, and buried it up. And just as we're beginning to finish and um, wrap up everything and go off to a meal. A dog comes scurrying around and does his thing right on top of the mum plant. And we thought, okay, this is Stud's way of saying, enough already, go on with life. Because it was a classic um, um, christening almost to this whole ceremony that we had done for a guy who was not in the ceremony or ritual, much less much of a believer, except in people. And I think that was something that really carried me through what was you know, sort of tough remembering him at the end was how much he had given back, how, how this sense of curiosity about regular folks and his ability to raise all of us up, to make all of our stories legitimate stories to hear, stories that the rest of us would want to hear or read about. It's something that I would encourage you to um, pick up working or any of his other books and be prepared to... Uh, be introduced to lives of people perhaps much like yourself or your parents, uh, your neighbors and colleagues, and to be amazed that we can find good stories in sort of regular everyday life. Um, let me try to show this final video. I might need Troy's help, and then we'll just do some questions and answers, okay? Too much up here in the yeah, podium. The spider web of If you could bring up that other one, I want to feel honored, of course, but I don't think I'm a journalist. <laughs> See, I call myself a disc jockey. I've been a disc jockey, so the interviews came about by accident. I used to play records, jazz and opera and folk music, and I'd play records. And I'd interview a certain singer, maybe Pete Seeger, or, or once I interviewed Billy Holiday long ago. I'm called a journalist. I'm not sure I am, but I'm honored, of course. Uh, I think someone else's name could have been used, but... I'm not being unduly modest, I just am honored. But what you're doing, aside from my name, 
what you're doing with that award, honoring those journalists who are good. When I won the award, you know, it made me think about, you know, for one, at first I thought, well, I'm not really worthy of this award. And then in questioning myself on that, uh, when I went to the dinner, some of the homeless groups that I've tried to help through the years came. They told me that, you know, they had been among those who had sort of urged that I get the award. It, it made me refocus, you know, in my mind what I did that was worthwhile. And so in winning this award, uh, it, it made me understand more what's important and, and what I need to do with my column, ways that I can use it to help people. Well, receiving the Turkle Award was definitely the highlight of my journalistic career. Um, I remember the, um, the reception that was held and Studs Turkle and the words he offered and he was talking about, um, he used this expression in Spanish, esperanza muere al último, which means hope dies last. And he was talking about how the farm workers often use that um, phrase, and it really just stuck with me. And, um, and I think that, you know, he's no longer with us, but I, I would like to just remember that, that phrase, hope dies last, because, um, you know, his work lives on, and, and the inspiration that he's given so many of us lives on. Anyone who was lucky enough to have a picture taken with Studs Terkel, he would do the same thing in every picture. And what would he do? He would point at you. He would point at you. And that t told me so much about the man, and that is he always tried to make it about the other person. And that's what made him such a great interviewer. Uh, he was always interested in the person he was talking to. He didn't try to make it about him. He really focused in on you. And I think, to me, that is the hallmark of, uh, that's one of the hallmarks of a great journalist. You come from a community. Why not start with the very community you come from? Might even be talking, no matter what your background, we've been talking to your mother and your father or your grandmother. Nothing wrong with that. Why not start from the old Chinese poem? I forget how it goes, you know. And it all begins with me. The world, the country, the region, the city, the block, me. It all begins with me. One of the great stories does ever tell me, I was doing a profile of him when he was about to turn 90. And he'd gone pretty much deaf by then. Yeah, we're having a drink here, actually, at Ricardo's. It will always be Ricardo's to me. And it, this is not a good place for someone whose hearing is fading, so where I'm screaming at him, and I'm like, what'd you do last night? What'd you do last night? He's like, Rick, I went to see Mother Courage at Steppenwolf. Berto Brecht. Brecht. Lie. And I said, you know, Studs, you went to see Mother Courage? A theater is not a, too much ambient noise in there, man. How did you hear the show? I didn't hear a word of it. Not a word of it, but I, but I know the show. I know the show. I know Mother Courage. It was like watching a beautiful, silent movie. I almost fell out of the booth thinking to myself, you know, most people, I would imagine, 90 years old, unable to hear, sit at home and read. They're not going to take this leap to go out and see a play because it might give them something and Studs got a tremendous 
amount out of this. It was that was one of the most inspirational things I'd ever heard. One of my favorite stud stories was that uh, he's, my, my wife's in radio and, and she puts on a uh, board ceremony every year for documentary radio producers and studs was a speaker one year and I was sitting with him at the head table and during dinner and I just thought oh my god you know this is going to be awful studs was he was he's deaf as a post for the end of his life and he just looked like it was like a low blood sugar day for me sitting there just kind of you know and I'm trying to talk to him and I couldn't get anything out of him and, and uh uh, I was thinking, oh my God, he's going to go up and get this speech. going to be a disaster. You know, he, could, he couldn't really concentrate. So Joanna gets up there, she introduces him, and he come, people give him a big standing ovation. And, and he walks on stage, and it was like somebody turned on the stud switch. You know, it's like the audience and the microphone, and suddenly he was, you know, 20 years younger, and he was right there, and he's like, Radio, it's the sound of the human voice. It's, the, it's America talking to America. And it's like, it's incredible. This incredible surge of energy and personality and charisma. And I was like, wow. And he does this speech, everyone leaves at their feet, and, you know, standing ovation, he comes off, and he, and he sits back down, and I was like, studs, that was great. And he, and he, and he had this, like, you know, it didn't turn back off again. It's, he had saved all his energy for that, and he had given all his energy, came back off stage, and <laughs> he turned off the stud switch. And so he uh, he could just rise to the occasion, uh, you know, a microphone and an audience, and that was studs. You know, he, had, he was so larger than life in that way. And, and uh, just that to me, that was studs. As a guy who, who when, when when the energy was there, he was he was so present. When Studs was in the hospital the first time, um, when we thought we were going to lose him, and he actually uh, got through and got through quite well, and uh, ended up holding on, fortunately, for a number of more years. But uh, I remember he was in the hospital, and it was during, it must have been 2004, during the presidential election, and uh, and Studs was lying in bed, and he was kind of in and out. He was on, you know, drugged up, and. Uh, and it, you know, not completely there all the time. And he was waking up, and I was standing there, and he said to me, Alex, Alex, how's it looking? How's it looking? And I said, Studs, you're looking pretty good. You know, you're, you know, and your color's coming back a little bit. And, you know, I was maybe kind of pushing it a little bit, but just wanted to make him feel good. No, no, how's it look? Election, how's it look? And that was Studs. I mean, he was always so engaged with what was going on around him. I mean, he just was so alert to everything. And I just remember that so well, because I just thought he, he, I mean, I was, of course, projecting, but if it was me, I'd be concerned about how I was doing. And what Studs was concerned about is, how's, how's the world doing? How's my community doing? It was really a privilege to know Studs. And all of us who knew him, even a little, felt that we knew him a little more than we did. That was part of his charm, part of his genius. To know so many people and to make so many people value knowing him. And when he died, my first thought was, that millennium is over. His passing was really the beginning of the new millennium for me. Because his going sealed something off. Sundown, all through Westminster town, whether we last the night or no, life is always touch and go. And that's it is with me. And you've given me the touch sign 
I go pretty soon, but I go having touched you, and you've touched me. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.